Hello there, welcome to Talent and Growth. I am your host, Paul Church, and this is the podcast about people, the people that make your business tick. We're talking about how we attract great people. We're talking about how we retain great people. So if people is what you're all about, then people, you are with the right people right here on Talent and Growth, namely me and my guest, Anthony Thompson, who is the co-founder and the NED of a company called Lupin. And Anthony is an expert in employee engagement. He is a veteran advocate. He's an entrepreneur. He's a thought leader in the corporate space. He's a really interesting guy. We're talking about AI. We're talking about engagement. We're talking about the need for focusing on soft skills rather than experience. And this is just a fascinating conversation that merges Anthony's experience with technology, human capability, his opinions on where we're going in, in the workplace, as well as giving some really good advice for companies who are looking to go through that fundraising phase. So just an all-round top conversation with a top guy. I hope you enjoyed this chat with Anthony as much as I did. Here he is. Quick shout out to my partners at MetaView, Talent and Growth Partners with MetaView. The Anemo Group Partners with MetaView, and it's a product which I love. We've recently introduced it at one of our clients and they quite simply are feeling like, where has this been all their life? There is no more need for taking notes during interviews. They don't need to write up their feedback or their uh, experience of a candidate. It's it's just a game changer. It saves you so much time. It, it works so well in terms of consistency, in terms of delivering a fair inclusive process for everybody and it, it's just it, it, like it's a game changer it really is so if you've not logged on to metaview.ai yet please do so mention talent and growth you'll get 10% off and everybody gets five free interviews to test the product come on it's a no-brainer give it a go check out metaview.ai here is today's pod Anthony welcome to talent and growth how are you doing my friend doing very well Doing very well, thanks, Paul. Good week, busy week. Good man. Well, I appreciate you spending some of your time with us today. And a great place to start, as always, if you wouldn't mind just telling us a bit about who on earth you are. Tell us a bit about your journey up until what you're doing these days. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So I'll try and keep it as concise as possible, but basically a decade in the Royal Marines. And a lot of that time was spent within intelligence, did three operational tours, had a great time, great exposure to working with different people around the world, some really, really great people. And I, of all places, ended up getting injured on Brecon Beacons on a training exercise. I completely ruptured all my ligaments in my ankle. And that led to my demise or my medical discharge, if you like. It was pretty painful. But, you know, if you think about it, I probably should have got injured on some of the operational tours rather than just getting taken on Brecon Beacons. But hey, it is what it is. So that led to medical discharge. After that, I left and I went into management consultancy. I was brought in as part of a team of six and the whole premise of that operation was to improve the large-scale program that we we're on through getting the right data and feeding it back into the right departments, making it really, really easily digestible for everyone and actually just trying to move the needle on that project. And I was really, really successful. After that, I moved to a smaller boutique consultancy in Bristol. And I think I was employee number five. I think it's now at 450. Really, really good exposure again. So projects and programs or digital transformation. It was really interesting. I was there leading an account, about 35 project managers, BAs, schedulers, and all that good stuff on big digital and transformation program. But at the same sort of time, I met my business partner, Ben, and we started a coaching consulting business. And the whole premise around that was to be able to extract 
the high quality elements of the military, i.e. the Marines, team performance, ethos, values, beliefs, and translate that into workshops, programs, coaching sessions for SLT, for corporate teams, SME teams, and try and unify them all together along this way of thinking. And we were doing really, really well. We won some big contracts. One of those was HSBC. We worked with Meta or then Facebook. We worked with VW, Manchester United, Wasp Rugby Team, a whole host of different and varied institutions and groups. And it was fantastic. And of course, as we were just hitting this inflection point in the business, COVID rolled in and completely interrupted how we were delivering. So we were delivering physical intervention. We then immediately had to move to digital intervention, as did everybody. So that's not new. But I think we always had this belief that if we rested on our laurels, then that's probably not the right thing to do. Let's not do that. And so I sort of took the lead trying to figure out a way that we could scale some of the problems that we'd noticed within the way that these businesses were capturing their human data. So what I mean by that was morale, performance, productivity was a sentiment. And that was really heavily leveraged on that. And so everything's always captured in an engagement survey, which is a lagging indicator. We wanted to develop something that was maybe to be able to be used as a leading indicator, identifying when things are going to happen. And we were looking at all sorts of technologies, including AI. That's such a buzzword at the moment, I know that. But we were looking at that and how can we make things hyper-relevant to the individual? How can we make them want to come back the next day and use it and actually just feed in very useful information to the SLT about what decisions do we need to make today as opposed to what can we make next week or in a year's time or whatever it might be. And so we went hell for leather on that. I was the CEO and co-founder for the first two and a half, sort of three years. And I stepped out May this year. It's just time for me to move on ultimately. And I've kept on as a non-executive director. And it's been really interesting where we're going. I mean, we always wanted to really focus on this hyper-relevant, hyper-personalized experience for the user. And of course, with generative AI, we were able to incorporate that. And now there's a new product that's just rolled out. And we can talk about that a bit later, but super exciting. And I'm now finding or looking for the next thing, whatever that might be. How's that transition been from what was, I'm sure, an incredibly full-on role you were playing? And I'm sure this still takes up a lot of your time, but moving to that non-exec, how has that been for you, I suppose, just in terms of your day-to-day and emotionally as well? I suppose it's a bit like, I don't know if this is a direct translation, but this is all that comes to mind. It's like Usain Bolt, training, running races, bam, 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 and then not being Usain Bolt. That's kind of the intensity levels of what it takes within a tech startup. So the not being Usain Bolt, if you like, has been interesting. And I think that it's not for me. I need to be in something. I need to be doing something. I've still got a lot of energy. I've still got a lot of skills and experiences I want to put into some new places. I don't intend to be on the bench for too long. Did you realise you'd feel like that? Because I imagine it's a bit like when you're in it, you probably think, God, I could do a bit of a break, maybe a couple of months of oh, yeah. off. And then once you get that couple of months off, you think, oh God, I wish I could get back to how I was. Yeah, yeah, exactly that. I definitely think you can push yourself to the nth degree. And I was probably on that point where I was really over-indexed on my own energy levels, if I'm totally honest. And I could have definitely done with the break. But I think having had that break, I'm now ready to move on to whatever it is next. And I think during that break is a big period of reflection. You know, you've got to understand what did I do right? What did I do wrong? I use this really, really interesting framework, which one of my friends gave me, which was a situation, behavior, outcome, SBO. I don't know if you've ever come across that before. But in effect, where you look back and you look at the situation, you identify what behaviors you were showing at that time. 
And then what was the outcome of that? And so I think that's really been quite a useful little framework to use to be able to look back and go, okay, yeah, maybe in the time I thought that was an injustice or I could have done better. You look at it. And I think reflection has really been one of my primary objectives, particularly in this period of rest, if you call it that. Now you're tired of reflecting and ready to get back into the action. Yeah, 100%. Good to go. And so, ex-Marines, and I know we talked last time that there's a passion for you is that veteran space, and particularly, I suppose, veterans returning to work. Do you want to maybe talk of that a little bit more and just elaborate into your work around that and your sentiments? Yeah, absolutely. So when I left, I had probably six months out trying to find a role. And it's not like the day I was told to leave, I always should start doing something. This happened maybe six months prior. And I think what was really lacking was this awareness to, well, how do I actually get a role beyond the military? How am I actually going to do that? And what skills have I gained that are usable, translatable, and people actually understand what I can do in a business? And this is repeated. This isn't just exclusive to me. This is everywhere within veterans. And so through that sort of really negative experience, I've always wanted and always sought to find out and seek out people who were going through that transition. And it just so happened that I came across this group of people that were already doing that. It was called Bootnecks Into Business, created by a couple of chaps called Ryan and Rob, both former Marines. And at the time, there were a couple of other people who wanted to be a part of it. And I threw my hat in the ring and I said, look, I think we've got a real opportunity to give awareness to and also latterly if it's appropriate give skills to those people who are leaving and the whole premise of this bootnecks into business is to get high quality talent aware to the fact through networking because that was the big thing that I didn't know about when I was leaving I thought it was all about get your skills get your qualifications make sure you do your CV a hundred times over it came up with nothing the only way I ended up landing the job in the management consultancy was through the network and I had to really pedal very hard to get that network up and running. So the whole premise of Boonex Into Business is to give them a networking opportunity to say, go and take people out for a coffee, go and have as many coffees as you can have, because at some point someone will recognize your skill set because they've walked in your shoes or your path at some point, and they can help you find the right place in the right company or indeed in their company. The whole premise around that is giving opportunities and directing people towards something rather than just going, oh, they're a veteran. Should we give them a hand up? Should we give them a leg up? Veterans are amazing and they really have a lot of skills to offer in the workplace. And so they really need to be, I think, just coached a little bit into what's possible. That's my work within the veteran space is making sure that those people find a suitable role or a suitable career beyond service. Networking can be something that some types of people really enjoy and other people it's their worst nightmare. Some people love walking into a room and saying, cool, this is who I am. Other people will dread it. I probably started off as the latter. Now I've kind of trained myself to be better at it. How difficult are you finding it with maybe perhaps more introverted people to get them used to that networking and the power of it? Exactly what you did. If you expose them to it, we created the saying in our work that Ben and I did is, you know, exposure equals composure. The more you're exposed to it, the more composed you become and the better at it you become. And again, I think the key part is if you reflect upon, well, how did the last one go? You have to be, you don't have to be anything. This is only my experience. I've found that you have to be very on top of your own stuff. 
And when I say stuff, you need to become highly self-aware. You need to go, well, how did that go? What did I do? How many conversations did I have? Who was in the room? Who do I need to go back and speak with? Because that whole process of learning about yourself, I think is probably the most important work. Because at what point during our education, our experience as a young adult, do we ever get encouraged that this is the way that you get more skills. This is the way that you get those soft skills. I think the soft skills focus is something that I'm really sort of banging that drum quite heavily about now. Perhaps we can talk about it later, but particularly in the world of AI, you know, if we don't really double down those soft skills, I think we're going to find it a little bit more challenging in the future, particularly when all those new jobs come in and we are unable to interact. But perhaps that's something for another conversation or later. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. I think more and more is, even automation has been doing this for years. And now, of course, with AI being much more accessible, we need to really be looking at the way we spend our time. And the way we spend our time must be doing something that only we can do and that couldn't be outsourced to a machine or a piece of software. Otherwise, we're going to struggle. And those are the roles and people who may find themselves having to reskill. How do you work on developing people's soft skills? Because again, some of this is innate, isn't it? And some of it does have to be trained. So how do you go about that? I think very simply, it's not about assigning, go and do more knowledge. We're in a knowledge industry right now. Knowledge is at your fingertips. I think the way that I promote it is gaining skills or gaining habits moreover. So if you don't know how to do something, a classic one is public speaking. Classic soft skill that most people don't have is public speaking. A classic soft skill that people don't have is conflict resolution. Because we're never taught Mm. conflict resolution even though it's probably one of the most important things that we can do in order for us as humans, as a society, to progress forward. If we're unable to have a conversation and we both have opposing ideas and sides about what we think it is, and we're both stuck in our ways and unable to see the other person's side of it in that conversation, how are we going to progress in that respect? Like, that's very difficult. And I think when it comes to the skill acquisition, that is what I focus on as opposed to just going, go read this thing, maybe go read that thing in addition to doing the work, doing the work on yourself, that personal growth angle. And so I've coached lots and lots of people, tons and tons of people from a wide spectrum, from the people very junior in a company, students to experienced execs. And really, there's quite a lot of similarities, but then there are also people at as you would naturally expect, different stages. You know, people are wanting to focus and learn different things, but fundamentally they're kind of the core set of activities, core set of things that people always wanted to refer back to. And it's through that exploration of in a session where you might ask lots of questions. I think being a good coach is about asking lots of good questions, allowing the person to be able to bring up through conversation their own conclusions about what they've experienced. And I think when you practice that, That's a skill to be able to do that. And it kind of hinges on what I was talking about earlier, you know, that self-reflection piece. That's a skill. And I think what you don't need is just more knowledge, how-to guides. It's a case of do this so it becomes a habit and you're continuously keeping yourself in check. So it's skill-based is what I focus on. The two examples you gave there around public speaking and conflict resolution, both those situations, if you're in it, they are times when your cortisol levels are going to go up. And so anything you may have been trained on or any skills you might have around that actually could go out the window because you're just like and your head's going to go mad so do you work on things like how to actually compose yourself in those types of situations yeah 100 absolutely you know composing yourself it's not always an exact science 
that's the key. And I think this is the thing. There's so many expectations of society. There's so many expectations of other people. You've got to be this way. You've got to do it that way. You've got to do it. And if you get angry, you're a bad person. When you tell someone that, naturally that person's going to go, I'm now stressed out about potentially becoming angry. And if I become angry, I'm going to be more stressed out about the time that I became angry than just being angry and letting that emotion go. It's not about trying to remove every part of that person and deconstruct that element, but it's about reframing. Okay, well, I might be passionate about this. I might be angry about this thing. But how do I channel that into an outcome? How can I divert that attention, that focus into a positive outcome? as opposed to just doing it in the moment and nobody benefits from it. Like that's the skill, I think. And I think that that's a really important skill that we should all learn. And I learned this particularly in the Marines. Marines, I suppose it's a tag, it's not really a tagline, but it's moreover, what do they do? Well, they execute extreme violence in a composed manner. That's the sort of terminology that you would use. And you can't just go around and execute extreme violence if it's not channeled, if you haven't been trained on how to use it. You need to know because the situations are so dynamic. You may be in a room with people who are not a threat and you need to be able to know that in the instant, even though the environment that you're fighting in, it might be the compounds that you fought through, it might be the villages hostile. You need to know in that moment that not every single person that you come across is going to be a threat. And I think that particularly, I'm very grateful for those experiences because they teach you something about extreme composure in times of insane adversity, I'd like to call it. But I think if I can extrapolate the mechanics of that for somebody, break it down through conversation and go, here's how we're able to not lose it and redirect it, even though the environment is saying we should be losing it. That's really important. That is a true skill, I think, that we really need to learn as a collective. The reality is we're not shown that. We're not shown that in a political frame. In any kind of leadership, we're not shown that in some of the ways that large corporates conduct themselves, more specifically people within large corporates. I think something that sticks in my mind is not because it's particularly, you know, I've got anything against this, but it just, for whatever reason, it sticks in my mind. Do you remember maybe a year ago or so when P&O announced cutting all of jobs? I don't mm-hmm. know if you remember that. The CEO got on a call and it's just like, oh, well, anyone that's on this call, basically you lost your job. See you later. Bye. Really? Is that how we're just letting 2,000 people go? okay, what is the better method? Well, that's to be decided, but I'm pretty sure that wasn't it because then that gets reported and perpetuated in the news and we go, oh, well, it's happening all the time, so we'll just be cutthroat and cold to everybody. I do understand that you have to cut people away from the business. That is just an unfortunate thing, but there are certain ways that you can do it. I've made a mistake. There's something that I've done personally, and there's a huge omission, even on this. I've never really talked about it, but there is a time when I let somebody go who I regret to this day not because I let them go, but the way I did it. And that serves me as a very painful reminder of how I'll never do it again. I've walked that walk, even though I thought what I was doing at the time was the right activity. That was a very painful experience after because I did the whole situation behavior outcome. And I was like, do you know what? I got that really wrong. I'm going to remember that. And I'm sure that person does as well. And you probably hadn't been given formal training as to how to manage that situation, I'm guessing. I don't know how you could gain formal skilled training to do that. Maybe there is. And I think there probably might be somewhere. But until you do it, and this is why you need to be super aware. I think the major emphasis is being super aware of oneself. If you just do that and you don't think about it, that's where I think the problems arise in the future. But sometimes you've got to go through pain, right? You have to, to learn. We touched on AI earlier. If you look at the pace 
we're moving at in society right now. And there's a lot of question marks over certain professions, which maybe a couple of years ago you might have thought they look pretty safe for the next 10, 15, 20 years. Do you want to maybe elaborate a bit more on the importance of how, I suppose, if we look at from business's point of view, how businesses should be developing skills, which are going to keep up with the changes which we can anticipate now? If you think about it, really, what has been enabled by this advancement in AI? I mean, AI has been around for years. There's no disputing that. It has been around for ages. The difference is we've now got generative AI. We've now got LLMs, large language models. And the benefit that has come with that is knowledge is now readily available by anybody in a way that it was just inconceivable five years ago, three years ago. Really, if you think about how available it is, and now what you have is you have people with these set of skills, developers or people like me. And the most important skill now is becoming a prompt person. What prompts do I need to put into this machine? Because probably two or three years from now, I'm going to take a little guess here. You probably could build a full software application without a single developer, maybe even sooner, 18 months, 24 months from now. What I think you have to be really good at in the future is knowing what questions to ask. That's the true skill. How do I become an expert in asking questions? Because the thing that I need to now put my thinking into is going to create that for me almost instantly or within a very short amount of time. And if I'm able to piece together step one, step two, step three, step four, even from my own understanding, that's one of the most important skills. Because all the repetitive roles, jobs that are out there probably will be replaced. Because if they're highly repeatable and it's just like admin roles or roles that require just a standard input, it's definitely the fourth industrial revolution. 100%, 100%, no one can deny that. But I suppose that a very easy way of looking at it is in Victorian times, and by the way, I'm no expert in history at all, so I'm just going to pick some, and I'm sure people will be able to pick holes in my historical ability, but I'm going to go with it anyway. I think you had kids on the production line who were feeding in these huge sheets of metal, hammer comes down, bomb, done. Then the next one, well, who does that work now? Well, of course, that was replaced by the third industrial revolution that happened. It's now automated by machines. So we've got to think in a similar context of who is basically feeding a metal plate into a hammer today and then just going, I'll do the next thing. With very little outward thinking, those roles are probably going to be replaced. And so I think we've got to look at that as a collective and go, okay, where are those roles within our company? And equally, I suppose we then need to have a further advanced thinking about things like design. Design was a classic one. I never thought design would go, but guess what? Maybe you don't need as many designers as perhaps what you once did because you can just request, I want this website to look like this website. AI in the background does some stuff and it goes, here's the font, here's the color, here's the structure behind it, here's the coding that you need to build that website out. It's interesting where we're going. One of the roles I think that probably won't ever be replaced is sales. I think that probably will never be replaced. Maybe what I'm talking about is like enterprise selling, that type of thing. That may never be replaced because that's a relationship-based skill between you and the customer. Having said that, the advancements in AI, particularly when it comes to chatbots and obviously being able to impersonate an actual human, they are becoming so advanced. So it does beg the question, are we able to detect in the future the difference between a chatbot who is apparently 
quite emotive, can have a conversation with you about anything because it's so knowledgeable. That would be interesting to see how it plays out in the future. It's tough to say never now, though, I think. There was a video that did the rounds recently with a video of a Tesla salesman, which was an AI chatbot with a nice, posh English person's voice responding to a consumer, absorbing the conversation. It took a second. There was a little bit of a gap from when the human spoke and the Tesla sales chatbot spoke, but it sounded good. It's incredible to think that even that telephone sales could be replaced. And the only thing that maybe that can't be replaced, we could see is the face-to-face element. But then if if it's being done online, then who knows? But a conversation I was having yesterday, I was at a round table with other talent acquisition leaders. And we were talking about how businesses, I suppose really leaders and founders should approach the fear that AI is bringing to the workforce. And I think You know, I'm always a big advocate of in the tough times, in the economy, in the market, if your company's struggling, you need to share that with your business because it's better to have people knowing where they stand and part of that journey than any surprises later on. I've learned that the hard way and I've done it well as well in my career. But I think the challenge at the moment is everyone's scared about AI. Well, a lot of people are scared about AI and their jobs being replaced, but we still don't know where it's going to go. My question to you is, what do you think the responsibility is of business leaders right now in terms of their openness around what the impact of AI could have on their business. Bear in mind that most business leaders out there, maybe I'm wrong, but I think most business leaders out there, if we said, right, actually, you could cut half your workforce and still get the same productivity if you had this AI, they're probably going to do it. How do we get a balance right? What do you think business leaders should be doing at this tough time? Business leaders, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, should be doing everything they can to understand what AI is, what AI actually is. How did it come about? What's the genesis of AI? Because if you understand the foundations and the fundamentals, then you're probably able to give a better understanding or a better example of what the future might hold and particularly then be able to link that back to your own company. Okay, well, if I know that these things are happening, where do I think that the gaps may appear in the future? I think that perhaps there are many, and I'd say the majority of business leaders who don't know what AI can do or will do in the future, everybody will probably argue, well, I'm an expert in this. They probably won't argue that I'm an expert in this, but they'll probably believe that they have a pretty good understanding of what AI is. But they probably have as much information about what AI is as the people within their company. And if the people within the company don't know what's going to happen with AI, then I think it's very difficult for the expectation to be on the leader as to what they think is going to happen. So If you are a leader right now, there is a real requirement to fully understand the scope of this, fully understand what is the direction of travel, invest time, study, learn, read, whatever it takes to really get a very, very clear understanding of what's actually happening within the world of AI. But I do believe that you're absolutely correct when you talk about the openness, the conversation should be open around it, 100%. If you're not open with your people, particularly at an early stage startup or any stage startup or any business size. If you're not open, say, I don't know, with a big corporate, 800 people, 1,000 people with your SLT, you're not clear on giving them the direction of where you think the world is going because ultimately that SLT is going to be the ambassadors of your message. They're going to be the champions of what you do and it all dilutes all the way down the company then I think it's going to be a real problem because at some point something's going to happen and you're going to go, I have to make this decision right now and I haven't equipped my people to be ready for that. Classic one is call centers. 
call centers are under threat. And you used that example earlier about the Tesla call. Well, yeah, for that, customer service, what does that look like in the future? I think that's going to be really interesting. How much can be automated through that? How much of my business is leveraged on customer service? How many customer service representatives do I need compared to what I have today to maybe three years from now? if most of those questions can be answered. Because ultimately what you've got with LLM is you've built out an interactive FAQ. And that was the only reason why you had customer service representatives because you wanted an interactive FAQ. How do I do this? Can you check across my account? Now, the only way that lots of people will be replaced within business is ultimately if your data sets in your back end of your business are completely tied up. Sales talks to marketing, marketing talks to customer support and vice versa. All of the data is captured within this system. That's the only way that AI can truly replace if all of the systems are linked. So you do need that big data element beforehand. It's kind of like we had big data from about 2014 onwards. And now what we have with generative AI, you've almost got the autopilot sat on top of that to find through all of that big data without having to have a customer service representative or someone like that someone navigating that, you've got the autopilot to navigate it anyway. So just stick it on autopilot and it will probably do 95% of the things that we as humans would do or would have done today. So yeah, I do think it's really important that the conversation is open, is live, is real, because I don't think there's any disputing the fact that jobs are going to change. And it's kind of up to us as the employee as well to equip ourselves with those necessary skills for the future. It's one of the things that I said, and I repeatedly say, we're going to have to ask more of ourselves as individuals, but we're also going to have to ask more of ourselves as employers, of ourselves and also of our people within the business. You know, you need multidisciplinary people. Those are people that are going to be hard to replace. If they can do two things or three things very well, then I think those are the people that are going to be hard to replace. If we work to the assumption that there's an inevitability that businesses perhaps will need less people to do the same based on once the crinkles in AI find out. And then with that, alongside that, the progress of AI means there's perhaps less of a barrier to entry to setting up your own business because it'll be easier to do so because you don't need the people. Maybe it's going to be cheaper or whatnot. So do you think we see a world where actually there's companies are a lot smaller, but actually there's maybe three or four times as many companies in the UK, for example, as there are right now? 100%. I do believe that. I've long believed that as well. I've long believed that you will just be feeding the bigger machines. So when I say I'm talking about feeding the bigger machines, what I'm talking about is that you've got the large conglomerates who are the tankers. Everyone knows this. The super tankers, very hard to pivot, very hard to move. But what you're going to have a lot more of are the smaller boats. Let's use that as the analogy here. You know, the smaller boats being created. And then at some point they're going to go, well, we want that. I think mergers and acquisitions are just going to go even more than what they are today because you're going to have so many more people who are so much more agile. They can create the same thing and now they don't need the headcount of three other people to help them achieve that. They just needed the initial idea. They needed to get the right prompt in. They needed to piece the thing together. And I think they're definitely, and I absolutely agree with you, there will be far more businesses in the next five years, I think, than there perhaps ever has been over the last 10, 15, 20 years, whatever it might be. But these businesses of the future will look very, very different to what a typical structure of a business is. And that, I think, is the big shift. One of the things that I think is already in flow is the whole drop shipping e-commerce aspect of it. Over the last five years, you've just needed less people, less inventory, less, 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 less. And now you just put an autobot on it. Sound like I'm in the Transformers. 
you create an auto chatbot on it. You've got your customer service there. You've got what people are offering, what people need. You can then go out and offer something different and you just prescribe it. And you can do that pretty much all from one person if they know what they're doing with the correct prompting. And everything is available now. You can go into ChatGPT, become my sales coach. I want to learn how to code and you're going to help me do that. You're going to use the expertise of everything that you know and you're going to help me become a great coder. You're going to act as the CTO, you're going to act as the CPO and you're going to help direct me of the things that I need to know. And this is the level that I'm sitting at. I'm a beginner. You're going to need to start teaching me from scratch. So now what we've got is we've got a resource that is inexhaustible for each person if the person knows what they want to ask. And that's why I think prompting is certainly the key skill for the future, but not ignoring these really soft skills that we have between one another. We are in a world of lots of entrepreneurs, myself included, and there's going to be plenty more entering the workforce, I'm sure. So from your experience of raising funds for your projects, but now we have business leaders who listen to this, absolutely. So do you have any tips for entrepreneurs who are looking to raise funds or any, or, you know, any advice around that type of thing at all? Yeah, don't ever underestimate it. It depends. You know, you're probably going to have people that listen to this who are, I've done fundraising before, never done fundraising I've had a business before, I've never had a business before, and I think you're going to have a real mix that listen to this. And I think probably, so when I'm now going to say what I'm going to say, it's probably more around those that are just maybe on the journey, maybe those who are just sort of putting their head above the parapet to really gain an understanding of what does that journey look like. There are kind of three very clear things that you need to be very clear on as the individual. It is, what is the market opportunity? As in, am I first market? Am I going to create a new market? Has it already been explored by three or four other people? By the way, classic Peter Thiel tactic there. Don't be the first person to the market, be the third or fourth or fifth or whatever it might be. You then need to understand, well, who do I need? And I think this is the thing. Who do I need? What is my team structure? Because that's something that investors are looking at now. And due diligence has gone up. It hasn't gone down. And that's just the nature of the market. So I just thought I'd feed that piece in. And then the third piece is being very clear on the mission and the vision. Be very, very clear on what it is that you're going. Do not waver, but understand where you're going to go as well. And it's kind of through those three elements that you will end up inspiring an investor to go, I like the market opportunity. I like the team. I like how you're thinking about the team and when you're going to need those people. And I also really buy into the vision. And then a couple other things, you need to understand your competitors. That's another thing that they really like to understand as well. And there's probably one more key thing, which I can't quite think of at the moment, but you need volume. It's a volume game as well. 100%. You need to go out, but it's probably time well spent researching through Crunchbase, through maybe LinkedIn groups, trying to find this is the angel network for X, this is the angel network for Y, or X isn't applicable to our business and Y is. Be really clear about how much money you think, you know, do that cost analysis on your own business. How much money do I actually need? Who do I need it for? How much am I going to spend on marketing and advertising? And that kind of factors into understanding your team. If you're a software business, and I speak from experience, you don't need a lot of the people in a typical business structure until you've hit near to PMF. You can outsource most of that. So you don't need a marketing team. You don't need a customer service support. You don't need account managers. You don't need any of that until you've actually started to get serious traction. So I think build your software company as is. You're the founder or the co-founder of that business. And actually, you're the person to go and get those initial sales in. Don't go too big. Maybe maybe you're an enterprise platform. Maybe you're not. I don't know. When it comes to the actual fundraising element, 
we're in a market driven by fear at the moment. Everyone is scared shitless. And equally, when you go into an investor meeting, the real psychology of it is that person's psychology is give me the reasons as to why this is not going to fail. Because the default is this is going to fail. And you have to, through that meeting, through that interaction, whatever it might be, de-risk their assumptions about why they think that's not going to fail. And if you do a good enough job of that and it satisfies it by the end of the conversation, you're probably going to get funding. Or at least they'll go, I'll write your check for X. And then you find the person who does Y and you find the person who does Z. I would say that is pretty difficult unless you're an experienced investment person or you have the network in VCs and stuff like that pre-starting the business to go and get VC money, pre-revenue. That is quite a difficult ask because you need to understand that world. That's something I didn't understand but learned over the last couple of years because it's a very different world. And again, it's all hinged on risk. But I think have things like your data room set up so people can look through your data room even at the early stage. Now, that was something that was probably required at Series A, but now it's probably required at Pre-Seed Seed, for sure. It's just everything has just been dialed up. The intensity of it and the perceived risk of it Everybody is just like, I'll probably just sit on my cash because I don't know what the future holds. And I think that actually that's one of the benefits in the UK is obviously we've got EIS, SEIS as well. That is a huge benefit because for investors, I don't know who's on this podcast who knows about SEIS, EIS, but ultimately it's something like they can wipe 35% immediately off their tax bill for the year. And if the company folds, they get like 50% back. I think that's particularly SEIS. So the maximum risk exposure is about 15% of their total investment, which is depending, you know, 100k is 15k maximum exposure, which probably isn't too bad for somebody who's got millions or hundreds of millions. So it's actually a very tax beneficial scheme for the investor. I think probably what I'd like to see in the future is something that is really benefiting the entrepreneur because you're up against the wall as an entrepreneur with everything. It's not entrepreneur friendly. It's investor friendly in the UK for sure. Some great advice there. I think the listeners who are founders or want to be founders will really appreciate that. And final question for me, really, just any upcoming projects or initiatives that you're excited about that you can share? Yeah, I think particularly with what's going on with the platform, we've just created Omni. I'm not involved in the day-to-day, but Ben and Alex and the rest of the team have just doubled down on really focusing on that hyper-relevant, hyper-personalized experience for the user. And I think that's really key. So That Omni is about taking videos, documentation, podcasts, whatever it might be, and replicating that in a AI model version of, say, like a coach or a leader or someone within the business that has got some good stuff to say. And so the whole crux of it being, if I wanted to interact after this podcast, then it might be a case where... I now have a chatbot that was trained on this podcast, among others. So maybe it was trained on you, trained on me, and you could get basically a a very personalized response to that individual. What did they say in that podcast? Okay, yeah, yeah, it was here. Can you create a video of that for me? Because that's how I like to learn. I'm a visual learner. Can you create that in bullet points? Can you create that in different ways? And that's kind of where we've got to now with the Omni product. And I think that is quite exciting because that will go on and develop and just mature over the next 12 to 18 months. And I think it's quite exciting because it's creating the autopilot for all of the information and knowledge and data that's out there. And you now being able to ask that autopilot to find X, Y, and Z. I couldn't remember what was said here. My notes say this. Interesting. Okay, well, I can go back and have that conversation. Quite powerful. So that's certainly 
very, very interesting and quite exciting. So very, very excited to see how that matures. But other than that, no particular projects that I can think of necessarily that I'm involved in that excite me. Watch this space, eh? I'm sure there'll be something soon. Anthony, appreciate the conversation today. It's been really, really cool talking to you about leadership, about veterans, about AI, about founder tips. I've learned a lot. I'm sure the audience have as well. If anyone wants to reach out to you or pick your brain on anything we've talked about or anything else at all, what's the best way for them to do so? LinkedIn is probably the best way to touch base with me. So find me on LinkedIn or find me on Twitter. I'm engaged there. Legend. Anthony, thank you so much for being a part of Talent and Growth. No problem. It's been a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Cheers, Paul. Just before I let you go, shout out to my friends at Candidate.fyi, one of our partners. Now, there has been a shift in how candidates are evaluating companies, which has been brought on by a new type of workforce, millennials and Gen Z. This new generation, more than anyone, cares about the experience more than ever. And talent teams who recognise this are winning the best talent faster. But keeping up this experience is tough. Candidate prep, scheduling, communication and feedback for a couple of jobs is a full-time job itself. Scaling it across an organisation, forget about it. Really tough. Do you hire more people or do you look to a solution? Modern companies like Syndasia and Tropic have found their solution and it's Candidate.fyi. With Candidate.fyi, talent teams can put their candidate experience on autopilot. It integrates seamlessly with your ATS and gives your candidates a centralised hub their entire journey. So head over to candidate.fyi to learn more. If candidate experience is something that you're all about, and I'm sure you are, sure it is, check them out. Great people, great product. I'll let you go now. See you next time.